Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is by G. Wayne Miller for the Providence Journal. We have literally been working on this probably for eight or nine years. Um, it, I think we've known we needed a new place for longer than that, but we've actually been actively working toward it over that time. And, you know, there's been, like any project, fits and starts and going and coming. But one of the things that we did that I would say is about four four or five summers ago with the COVID year, I'm kind of, you lose track of the time, but we started like trying to find a partner who had land. Um, Where we currently are, uh, the property's owned by a board member, but it's an old mill house, which is not really the best place for a museum for care of collections. It's a little difficult as well for accessibility. You know, our main gallery is accessible, but like if you wanna do research in the archives and collections, most of that is upstairs um, in a very old building that once also was a, a church. Um, And so there's really steep stairs that go upstairs. Um, So it's not very accessible. And so we started vetting with partners. Um, We did four sites at uh, the Rhode Island DEM. We did three, um, actually four sites in the town of Charlestown. We did one at the Rhode Island Historical Society and three at the University of Rhode Island. And our major goals when we were thinking about the land were visible. Those that know where we are, we're really tucked in the back section of Exeter on the back side of Arcadia Park. And we're on a very, very rural road. So visible to me meant tourists could find us easily. The public in general would know the general idea of where the location was without thinking too hard. Um, We also wanted it to um, be uh, visible accessible, I meant to say. And I mean accessible building-wise, we'll build a new building where everything will be accessible inside, no matter your ability. Um, But accessible also meant accessible by public transportation. I cannot tell you how many people call us up and ask, well, how do you get there via a bus? And you just can't. We're in a place that there is no bus service. And so we wanted to be near bus lines um, and if possible, other kinds of forms of transportation. And lastly, we still wanted to be rural. We wanted to feel, because what people love about coming here is they love um, being in a very um, rural environment in the natural world that connects to indigeneity and to the land and to understand and be able to envision our history while thinking about what indigenous people do today, um, considering we use the words traditional ecological knowledge, the knowledge about the land and its uses, um, the gifts from the creator in, in creating useful items, medicinal items, spiritual uh, materials, um, you know, um, things that you need in your life, uh, which often I call your life ways, the jobs that you do. And so we wanted all of that in a new space with a certain amount of land in which we could still take people on those hikes like we do here um, and be, you know, exposed to that nature and have that kind of a space. So the short version of that is, 
we started vetting them one by one and we decided the URI campus fit all three spots because, you know, it was visible, you know, tourists are tooling up and down 138 all the time, you know, going to and from Newport, as well as, you know, to Providence, it was kind of, even though it's not the absolute center of the state, it still felt central, because you could get there from route one, you could get there from route two, you could go up 138, there was a lot of ways to get there. Um, It was in an environment that there's a lot of people around, you know, with the campus. And yet, it was also accessible, because there's the bus routes, there's the gorgeous bike paths. Um, There's the new URI bike path that goes across. Um, And there's the train station. I actually had a colleague that had wanted to take the train down to us. And when we were here, I said, well, I still have to drive like 30 minutes to get you. It's almost as much as going to get you where you are. And um, so, and then of course, it's still a rural town and the land Um, In the end, we made, it took, I don't know, three or four years to go through the process. Um, President Dooley and his leadership team had been on board virtually from the beginning. Uh, Senator Lou De Palma really helped us broker that relationship um, to get in and have those conversations. They were enthusiastic about that. They gave us an agreement um, that would allow us to go on the land to do the preliminary vetting, which we did um, a master plan with that first agreement uh, that was funded by uh, a private donor. And that allowed us to kind of move the process along to vision what it would be. Um, We plan on having a campus approach with four buildings, um, a main museum building um, that will have the gift shop. And at the beginning, it will have offices and a conference room. Um, Then the second building is an education center um, that will have two education classrooms that have accordion type doors or sliding like walls, whatever you call that. Um, So it can be one big room or it can be two rooms depending on what you need. Um, And then that's phase one. Phase two would include our Indigenous Empowerment Network building, which will have the artist in residency studio, the training space for our IEN program, you know, on job development, job training, entrepreneurship, small business development. It'll also have the cafe, um, which will, you know, be incorporating Indigenous foods and foodways. And then um, the last building, we're kind of hoping the IEN building will be phase 1B, because we'd like to do the three at the beginning if we could. Um, But that'll be all about how we can get the funding once we launch our capital campaign, which is a little bit farther off than today. Um, The last building will be our Archive Collections Research Center. And some of the offices and things from the main building will go into that building in the end. Um, And those spaces will be expanded exhibit space um, as phase two is completed. And then along with that, in the campus, there's a quadrangle uh, for performances and other kinds of activities. There's um, going to be a traditional uh, garden, three sisters, corn, bean, squash. But we're talking about having medicinal gardens, uh, spiritual gardens uh, or ceremonial gardens, um, you know, indigenous plants all along the landscape, as well as outdoor sculptures and exhibits. So we're trying to have exhibits not just in the main exhibit gallery, but throughout the campus. So it will, there'll be exhibits in each building as well, each buildings, each one of the buildings, as well as outside. 
So this is 18 acres, is that correct, Loren? It is. So we had um, the University of Rhode Island approved um, with their new board last June um, an 18-acre license agreement for Tomaquag Museum, and then the State Facilities Board um, approved that in July. And so we've been approved for a bit of time. It was a crazy year last year. So we weren't quite ready to um, disclose it all to the public, but now we're ready. And we wanted to really um, have people know where we are at and how much work we've been doing behind the scenes um, while maintaining all the work we're doing for the public for all our public programming. So this 18 acres is off Ministerial Road in South Kingstown, is that correct? Correct. Mm -hmm. In between the elementary school and the bike path. We are currently, after we got the approvals in the summer, we have started the architectural engineering planning. Um, and that's still ongoing. We're doing some of the pieces of that still. Um, with the architect, we work with Frank Kopowitz, um architectural firm out of um, Wakefield. And he's phenomenal um, and has been really working hard on those pieces. Frank Kopowitz did our master plan uh, maybe two years ago, and we're we're disclosing it now to the general public. Um, and he's working on the architectural and engineering planning with the team of engineers, landscape designers, and all of those folks um, as we speak. Um, we've also um, had a small grant from the Heritage Harbor Foundation. Uh, to start the preliminary work on exhibit design, because once stuff is moving with the architectural engineering plan, we can't leave the exhibit design behind. Um, so we did um, four focus groups in the fall to kind of get some big picture ideas, some themes, some desires, what people would like to see in exhibit design. And um, this month, we're going to actually be sending out um, uh, uh, a survey to uh, the community to get their like wide range of people's input on what they'd like to see in our exhibits um, moving forward. And so we're working on exhibit design planning. We're working on um, the architectural engineering planning. We actually have a partnership with um, a professor, uh, Laura um, Briggs from uh, RISD who is also working with our architects and they're doing a, a green, I'll use my words, a green uh, assessment or evaluation on the architectural and engineering planning because they have techniques where you can pick different materials to make things more green, um, but they're also doing that within a reasonable cost so that we still can keep um, our costs in a place where we can afford to move forward. Um, but it's very exciting. It's talking about water capture and um, possibly solar as well as um, the actual types of materials that you use to build your buildings and, and to put, you know, uh, pavers that are water soluble, I think is the word, where water can seep through. Um, <clears throat> that allows us to have the accessibility across the campus, but also not create uh, non-porous surfaces that cause, um, you know, water runoff and drainage. But also in the landscape design, there's the engineers have been working on uh, these like little uh, water 
I'll call them little water ponds that capture water runoff, but they're, the plan is to have traditional plants like bulrush and cattails and things like that, that also are, are plants that we're talking about in education that would allow us to talk about our historical and traditional uses of those plants um, as well as serve the purpose of creating these basins for, for, for water runoff to ensure our environmental sustainability. When are you hoping to break ground? So I believe the timetable on breaking ground is 2022. Um, so 2021, the whole entire year would be, um, you know, getting ready. So part of this year will be getting ready for capital campaign. We're talking about end of the year, like fall 2021 to launch the public capital campaign and that would go through the winter and then sometime between summer and fall we'd break ground in 2022 and actually like move in in 2023 you have worked and and the staff and the board and and pe many people have worked so long and hard for this is this sort of a a dream come true just talk about the emotional power of this i mean this is you know you, you well, really said eight, nine years, whatever. It's been a long road. Talk about it. It has. And interestingly enough, not only has it been an eight, nine year uh, road over this portion of Tomaquag Museum, which for those that know us know we were founded in 1958. Um, we are currently in our fourth home, three of which have been in this little village of Arcadia, um, fourth buildings, um, but we were founded in Ashaway. And it's something we were talking about in, in the 80s and in the 90s of needing a new facility, but we weren't at a place to do what was necessary. I think that we've grown so much and, you know, um, understand the contributions that we give to the community, our value to tourism, our value to the, the cultural landscape of Rhode Island. Um, I think, you know, we have researchers that are reaching out to us on a weekly basis, um, people that are creating books and films and uh, performances and documentaries and student work, et cetera, that are, are understanding um, what we do here and the value of the work that we do, as well as our impact on teachers and educators of various sorts in museums and uh, doing cultural competency trainings and uh, professional development of a variety of sorts. Um, and then of course, the, the education that we give the general public. So I think that it's been something that we've needed for a long time. Um, but didn't quite know how to get there. And, you know, our constituents have been wonderful. Our partners are fabulous. You know, we've created so many partnerships um, across this region, not just Rhode Island, but, you know, Southern New England in particular, um, that have really helped us grow and elevate the work that we do and have given us the, the, the knowledge, you know, partnerships with places like Rhode Island Foundation and Rhode Island State Council on the Arts and the Humanities um, and many other funders. But when I say them as partners, I mean the programs that we're in, like we're in the Rhode Island Council on the Humanities Culture is Key 
program right now and how that elevates the things that we're looking at on how we can create civic engagement. It's something we do all the time, but it's like, how do you do it better? How do you ensure that you're creating the engagement that you're really trying to do? Um, whether that's through the Rhode Island Foundation Fund Development Cohort that we were in last year that really helped us improve our, our fundraising skills, which was something we really needed to be able to do in order to get ready for um, this campaign coming up in the fall. Um, one of the things I have to say is just a really big thank you to our, our donors, our funders, our, our constituents, our, 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 our participants, because they've kept us vibrant during this crazy COVID year that could have gone really wrong. And with our friends' help, we've weathered through this time and we're still in a position to be able to move forward with our new facility. So I thank them very much. Thank you, Loren. Stay safe. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.